Some Republicans are now arguing over who has the most conservative stance on abortion. I support no exceptions for abortion. Mike wants exceptions, I do not. He's for life with exceptions. I am pro-life all the way. First of all, I have always stated, and I've always been and always will be, 100% pro-life, period, no exceptions. That's Vernon Jones and Mike Collins at a debate this week. They're running against each other in the Republican primary runoff for Georgia's 10th congressional district. Georgia lawmakers already passed a restrictive abortion law with few exceptions that could take effect if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. So now, no exceptions, even in the cases of rape, incest, or threat to the mother has become the new conservative measuring stick. Just listen to this snippet of a debate between Jake Evans and Rich McCormick, who are going after the GOP nomination in the 6th Congressional District. The only exception that I do support is to save the life of the mother. I don't know of a time where it would be beneficial to kill a baby to save a mother's life. So I, I reject that, that argument to begin with. In the days after the draft Supreme Court ruling leaked, signaling that Roe v. Wade may be on its last legs, David Perdue pushed Governor Brian Kemp to embrace a total abortion ban too. Instead, Kemp has been defending the restrictive abortion bill he signed in 2019. We passed the strongest pro-life bill in the country by one vote here three years ago when he wasn't even talking about this issue. Still, Democrats are warning voters that Kemp could be tempted to sign an even more restrictive bill if he's re-elected. For years, Brian Kemp has taken Georgia backwards. This is from a new ad for Democrat Stacey Abrams. He wrote back women's rights, vowing to make abortion a crime. How could a landmark Supreme Court ruling jolt the midterms? I'm Sam Greenglass, politics reporter at WABE in Atlanta. I'm Susanna Capaluto, editor at WABE. And I'm Raul Bally, WABE politics reporter. Emma Heard of Axios is away on assignment. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a weekly podcast from WABE in Atlanta that's all about the midterms. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an and impact. I vote my because local I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. All right, Sam, tell me a bit more about exactly what would happen if Roe versus Wade is struck down. So Georgia's 2019 law which bans most abortions after about six weeks, has been on hold by the courts, basically awaiting this ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. If the high court strikes down Roe, legal experts say that Georgia's six-week ban will be allowed to take effect pretty quickly. Now, this law would make obtaining an abortion a crime, and it would be up to individual district attorneys to decide whether to actually prosecute people. Uh, Some liberal DAs, like Sherry Boston in DeKalb County, say that they won't. I have people that ask me all the time, What is your position on the possession of drugs? What is your position on gun charges? If we can answer every single one of those questions, then there's absolutely no reason not to answer this very critical question about how you intend to handle abortion if it becomes criminal. And even if DAs like District Attorney Sherry Boston in DeKalb say they will not prosecute people, that does not mean that others won't. And it's very likely that there could be prosecutions across the state and you'd have this really uneven application of the law, depending on what county, what part of the state of Georgia you live in. 
And Raul, you covered this debate when this abortion bill was passed in 2019. Has the conversation around abortion changed since then? Frankly, Susanna, it wasn't even on the radar. You know, uh, take our audience back to this year's legislative session before it even started. The governor, lieutenant governor and speaker of the Georgia House all said, we're not looking to, to pass abortion legislation. You know, we're waiting for the, the new abortion law to kick in, the one that's being held up by the federal courts. It just wasn't on the radar, really not talked about on the early campaign trail. And then the leak happened. And then suddenly Everybody was talking about it. Uh, the leak happened right in the middle of the primary debates. And so now it is just it's out there. It is front and center. And and the real question is for Republicans, what is the message? Is the message running on the legislation that's currently held up in the courts when the six week ban kicks in and then you run on that? Or do you run further to the right? You guys heard the audio at the beginning of the show. You have rape and incest exceptions or not, even health of the mother, that's what's being debated. And then a total ban, whether it's six weeks or all the way down to conception. That's the question for Republicans. What is the message? Now, depending on where Republicans go on this, it will matter who's in office next January. So both sides are obviously talking about abortion to energize their voters. But how much can a Governor Abrams, for example, or an Attorney General uh, do to change or enforce the existing law if it were to go into effect? So there are limits. Uh, a potential Governor Abrams could certainly veto any more restrictive legislation that's passed by the General Assembly. But we should remember that Georgia's General Assembly is likely to stay in Republican hands, even if you have Democrats winning statewide office in the state, in large part because of redistricting and gerrymandering. So it will be very difficult for Democrats to either roll back the current law or to pass new and different laws about abortion. The attorney general does have some power in this space uh, to either defend Georgia's abortion law should it appear in court in another capacity or to challenge it. But like I said, it's really going to be up to individual district attorneys who have the greatest power to decide whether or not to enforce this law, not the attorney general, not the governor. I want to talk a little bit more about the legislature for one moment. The Georgia House is in Republican hands and will likely stay in Republican hands. With the lines that were redrawn, there is an expectation, unless there's a massive Republican wave through the state of Georgia, that they will lose some more seats. And it will make the margins really close. To let our audience know, it takes 91 votes to pass something in the Georgia legislature. The legislation that we're talking about that's held up in the federal courts, the more restrictive law, House Bill 481, passed with 92 votes, one vote to spare. If you have even fewer, there actually may be difficulty for Republicans to pass anything, much less Democrats pass anything. So the environment is a little bit more predisposed toward compromise because you need some across the aisle votes to do something in at least some cases, versus, you know, having this trifecta where you don't really need to worry about getting any Democrats on board. Or nothing gets done mm -hmm. because everyone's going to go to their corners. Mm -hmm. So even less idea of compromise and just nothing gets done. Now, do you think, Raul, that this escalating war among Republicans to be sort of the most pro-life candidate possible is a feature of primary campaigns? Could it hurt 
the Republican chances with, say, suburban white women if they persist on this message in the general election? This, to me, is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, by moving to the right, you will bring out those voters. But you're right. This could also be a problem on the other side where voters may say, look, there's a threat to the life of the mother and you're not going to give that exception. That's where it's going to be important, where people are going to be defining each other. What I wonder politically, if Republicans are gambling with suburban white women here in this debate, white women in the suburbs is the Republicans' toughest group, I think, to satisfy. And, you know, many of these voters fled the Republican Party when Trump was either in the White House or at the top of the ballot in 2020. The question now is, once Trump is out of the White House, is not on the ballot, will those same voters come back to the Republican Party that they maybe momentarily left? Or will this be a more permanent shift in how people identify themselves as voters in this state? Now, the other thing I want to say, and I know Raul has some skepticism about these uh swing vote, the existence of these swing voters. But while we're talking about abortion as this double-edged sword that can help in the primary, but maybe hurt you in the general election for Republicans, there's another issue that is just like this, I think, and that's guns, which we're going to talk about a little later in the show. You know, Republicans have carved out some very conservative stances. I mean, Governor Kemp passed permitless carry during this legislative session, which was very galvanizing to Republican primary voters. But now that we're in this moment where we've seen this spate of mass shootings in this country. Gun control legislation is again at the center of the policy debates in this country. Could that hurt Kemp with some of these suburban voters who might be dispelled by that kind of policy at a time when they're worried about their kids walking into their elementary school? I want to explain my skepticism that Sam brings up because Georgia's electorate is so close. This is a 50-50 state. Okay, Joe Biden won by little under 12,000 votes. Those suburban women voters don't matter if your Republican voters don't show up for, for Republicans, your conservative, you know, gun rights folks and abortion rights folks don't show up. In the same way, those voters don't matter if black voters don't show up. That's how close the state is. If you can't get your bases out, the center doesn't matter. But you're absolutely right. Gun control and abortion rights can absolutely move those needles. And I asked Stacey Abrams about this question a couple of weeks ago, whether this you know million or so new voters who have registered in the state since her last election in 2018 will be enough to put her over the edge to victory this time. And she made the case that this not only needs to be a, a turnout-focused campaign, but a persuasion one, too. So you know, I expect we're going to see campaigns doing both of those things, because every vote is really going to matter in this very close state. I think the key on figuring out if suburban white women are a constituency Republicans are worried about, is going to be the stance that Governor Kemp takes on abortion. If he goes far to the right, then they must think they don't need suburban white women. If they stay sort of where they are now, exception six weeks, it's my bill, I did this, he won't make suburban white women too mad, I guess. And I think one point to kind of 
temper all of this conversation about the importance of guns and abortion is I think Republicans are still banking on the fact that the economy and inflation, gas prices is going to overpower all of this. And at the end of the day, voters are going to be thinking about their pocketbooks and not issues like abortion or guns when they make decisions at the ballot box. I think the question, because of this conversation, I might want to ask voters, they may vote on the economy, but what drives a person to the polls? Could gun control drive someone to the poll? Could abortion drive someone to the poll? Make them want to go vote, whereas somebody who planned on voting already may vote on the economy. I want to turn to the topic of guns, which has been thrust onto the national stage again. Sam, you've been looking into Daniel Defense, the Georgia-based gun maker that manufactured one of the AR-15-style weapons that was used in the Uvalde shooting. What did you learn? Well, Daniel Defense is known for their aggressive marketing. They are all over social media, including on Instagram, and they've been accused of marketing to teens. Uh, They've raked in banner profits in the last couple of years. You know, gun sales are up around the country during the pandemic. And with those profits, they've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republican candidates for office around the country and here in Georgia. Uh, Herschel Walker, who's running for U.S. Senate here, is one of the candidates who has received direct contributions from the founders of this company, uh, Cindy and Marty Daniel. You know, the experts I've talked to say that we should be careful, though, about overstating the importance of these political contributions in shaping the debate about gun control and uh, uh, trying to understand why pushes to reform gun laws have been so stalled in this country. In reality, it's voters who most directly shape how Republican candidates act on guns. Uh, I just want to play you a clip of tape from Rick Jaspers. He's a state rep from North Georgia, a Republican. And he told me about his first experience campaigning when he ran for office back in 2010. One gentleman's kind of sat right in the middle of the room. But he just comes out and says, Rick Jaspers, where are you at on the Second Amendment? And I found very quickly, Sam, that wherever I went, that was the number one question. And, you know, I also talked to Ryan Bussey, who's a former gun industry exec, and he says, you know what, it's marketing by companies like Daniel Defense that do way more to shape political attitudes about guns in this country, especially tactical weapons like the AR-15 style gun that was used in Uvalde, than any of these political contributions do. The incendiary, fear-based political message is perfectly aligned with what has become the right kind of radical part of firearm sales and what that has become in our culture. And you can actually see this crossover between marketing and this attachment to specifically tactical weapons and the politics in North Georgia, where Andrew Clyde, the congressman there who's running for re-election, has an AR-15 style weapon on his campaign signs, not, you know, an American flag or red, white and blue, but a gun. The House Oversight Committee in Washington, D.C. is now investigating Daniel Defense and a few other gun makers uh, in this country. And two victims of the Uvalde shooting are now taking steps toward a lawsuit against them. And Andrew Clyde has a gun store. So there's another connection why he might have a gun on his campaign sign. Just want to make that clear. Now, Raul, how has Governor Kemp responded so far to all these calls for reform? So his initial reaction um, right after the Texas shooting was a press release, a written statement, which he called 
you know, an update on school safety. The basics of it was securing schools and mental health funding for the schools. That's what he focused on. Really didn't focus on any legislation uh, in terms of guns. It was really kind of this kind of this narrative that we're hearing about secure the schools, secure the schools. I don't think the word guns was in the statement anywhere, was Hang it? Hang on a second. I should check. I've got the statement up here. Uh, no, it's not. Look, the Republican Party in Georgia is moving to the right on guns. In the legislative session that just passed, permitless carry is what got through the legislature and was signed by the governor. So that is the direction of the Republican Party in Georgia. And in Washington this week, we've seen members of Georgia's congressional delegation actually playing a central role in these debates about federal gun policy. Of course, we have Representative Lucy McBath, who came to uh, prominence as a gun control activist. She this week is introducing a red flag law in Congress and uh, gave a very emotional speech on the House floor about her personal story and the need for this law. And on the flip side, you know, the House Oversight Committee this week heard from families and victims of gun violence, as well as uh, municipal leaders and others. And you have two Georgia Republican congressmen, Jody Heiss and Andrew Clyde, who are talking about the response to the shooting being very much focused, like Kemp, on hardening schools, school security, and, you know, saying that any changes to gun laws is not the way to solve this issue that's plaguing our country. For our listeners to really understand the stance of no compromise on any gun legislation, I would totally recommend the podcast, No Compromise, by our own Lisa Hagen. If you have not heard that, it will really give you the insight on why this gun debate is so stuck. This is a good time to take a break. I'm Susanna Capaluto, and this is Georgia Votes 2022. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022, today with Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass. Raul, let's talk about the runoff debates um, that happened this week. On Monday, you helped host them at the Atlanta Press Club. Tell us about one debate that illuminated something new for you about one of the races. So let me start off by telling everybody that I am the co-chair of the Atlanta Press Club Debate Committee. Uh, I've been involved with the debates for more than 20 years, and and in this case, I and Emma Hurt had a front row seat to two of the the testiest debates, the 6th and 10th Congressional Republican primary runoff debates. We were both panelists. And, and a quick story that I just have to tell uh, is involves the race for 10th Congressional. This is the race for the congressional seat that's east of Atlanta that runs toward Augusta. 
and it's between Vernon Jones, who is a former Democratic state representative endorsed by Donald Trump, running against Mike Collins, who was the front runner. He got the most votes in the primary. And here's the story. They were going at it. They were arguing. They were mad at each other. You could see hands shaking and jaws clenching, and I couldn't help but watch. I even I even turned my chair and was just watching them go at it. And then suddenly the moderator of the debate goes, Raul, your question. And I just have this look on television, because uh, I had just so locked in on the debate. That is how ugly and testy Vernon Jones was talking about Mike Collins' father, who was a former congressman. And then you heard at the beginning of the show the audio from both of those Republican debates on how conservative I am on abortion. And that was my big takeaway, is this charge to the right on abortion by some candidates and then others who are trying to trying to walk a line like Governor Kemp. And you can actually watch the debates online, but they're also going to be on WABE TV this Sunday from 10 to noon. So tune in and watch this um I don't know if I want to say entertaining debate, but it's a testy one, that's for sure. And Sam, I want to ask you about a topic we haven't discussed yet on this podcast, student loan forgiveness. Abrams held an event for high schoolers on Monday talking about this, and Senator Raphael Warnock is also talking about it. How will this play into the campaign, you think? Well, the backdrop to all of this is this broader discussion nationally about student loan debt. It's an issue that first cropped up a lot in the Democratic presidential primaries in 2020. Uh, one ranking that I found actually says that Georgia has the third highest student loan debt per person in the country. Uh, so clearly an issue that is resonant in this state. Both Warnock and Abrams want the White House to forgive some of the 1.7 trillion in student loan debt in this country. Uh, neither has specified exactly how much they want the White House to forgive. That is a subject of debate in Washington right now. But Abrams has also touted a plan for a new needs-based aid program for state schools here in Georgia. And I think the crux of this is that, you know, young people are a key constituency for Abrams and for Warnock in being able to win Georgia. Democrats need to give young people a reason to vote and student debt hits really close to home. And I think also it dovetails nicely with Democrats trying to show that they're doing something about rising costs as, you know, Republicans hammer them on inflation. Attacking student loan debt is a way to help provide relief to people's pocketbooks. All right, let's totally switch gear. Georgia Secretary of State Brett Raffensperger testified last week in front of a special grand jury in Atlanta investigating whether former President Donald Trump committed crimes when he tried to overturn the 2020 election results here in Georgia. Raul, you were outside the courthouse. Uh, where does this investigation stand now? So in terms of the grand jury that is being run by the Fulton County District Attorney looking at possible actions by the former president and others to affect Georgia's 2020 election results. The staff of Georgia Secretary of State Rad Raffensperger is wrapping up their testimony. It wasn't just the secretary. Other members of his staff have been testifying this week. Still ahead, the attorney general of the state of Georgia has been subpoenaed to appear in front of that committee. Also, a couple of state senators, Democratic state senators, who were involved in some of those hearings at the state capitol, including one that you know Rudy Giuliani appeared at. 
they've also been uh, uh, subpoenaed to testify. So that grand jury is continuing its work, continuing to hear people. Some of those subpoenas go well into well into this month. So that's something we're going to be watching. We're also going to be watching something that is developing is members of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office appearing in front of the January 6th committee up in D.C. So our reporting is that at this moment there is negotiations between attorneys for the Secretary of State and the January 6th commission for the secretary to testify um, in Washington. So and that came after a subpoena. That's kind of something important to point out. He was subpoenaed. But I also should add that our colleague Emma Hurt is also reporting that the chief operating officer of the Georgia Secretary of State's office, Gabe Sterling, is also possibly going to testify in front of the 1-6 commission. So Georgia, you know, we always talk about that Georgia influences everything. It's going to influence the 1-6 hearings as well. And that's what I was going to point out, too. Georgia, again, at the center of the political universe. You know, last night, the first public hearing of the January 6th committee, the first person to testify a Capitol Police officer who was injured on January 6th, who is an Atlanta native. Well, Georgia matters. That's all I have to say. And WABE will be on the trail here with you all the way. That's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022. Raul and Sam, thank you so much for being here. Talk to you next week. See you next week. Georgia Votes 2022 is a campaign podcast from WABE in Atlanta. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. And check out our other podcasts, including Political Breakfast, which drops every Wednesday. We'll see you next week.